Welcome to Pep Talks, Pepper Jam's affiliate marketing podcast, where we chat with some of the channel's most well-known brands and most influential partners. Today, we're meeting with Emily Nozke, Senior Director of Commerce, who not only helped pioneer affiliate at Condé Nast, but who also continues to champion commerce content. If you haven't already, take a beat to subscribe to Pep Talk so you automatically receive updates on all of our new episodes. Or better yet, fire off a review and tell us what you think. Your reviews help us to continue to get exciting guests like the one we have today. So I'm Chrissy Kemmerer and joining me is Pepper Jam CMO, Mara Smith. Hello. And we are graced with Emily Noske, Senior Director of Commerce at Condé Nast. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. Hello, hello. So great to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to, to be on Pep Talks. Absolutely. So, Emily, um, I first met you by way of introduction from an individual on your team who had very, very uh, great things to say about you and your uh, time in the affiliate space. So I think to get things started and kicked off today, why don't you just tell us about your background. You've been in affiliate marketing for quite some time. How did you end up at at Condé Nast? Give us sort of the lay of the land. Yeah, for sure. Um, first off, I definitely paid her to say that. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, let me take you kind of back to the beginning. Um, so as you can tell, not from the US, I actually grew up in the UK, um, grew up in a place called Cornwall, which is the very southern tip of England. Uh, and I was actually studying journalism in Brighton. And then one of my first jobs after studying journalism, I worked for this super small brand uh, who was focused on kind of sustainability within the luxury sector. So I was doing a lot of writing, um, a lot of content creation, thinking about the blog, thinking about social media, and, and that eventually moved into an operations role. Around the same time, um, I decided that I want to do a little bit of traveling. And there is like a big business in the UK that basically takes, um, you know, well, a lot of students, I say people on their gap year, that obviously wasn't the case for me, but they placed them at summer camps in the US. So I actually uh, came over to the US and started working at a summer camp. I was a camp counselor. I taught taught horse riding. Um, at Where a camp was that? It was in Portland. Well, just outside of Portland, Maine. Um, about 45 minutes north, That's a camp beautiful. called Camp Neshoba North, yeah. So I actually did three summers there, but while I was there, uh, as the classic love story goes, I met a guy, and he was he was American. Um, so we ended up doing long distance for a while, uh, but I knew that I wanted to be over in the States. Um, and when I first moved over here, I knew of this company called Skimlinks from my time in London. So obviously Skimlinks is, is one of the big affiliate technology providers. Um, and they were just opening their New York office when I had just moved to the States. And so I ended up being employee number two for them when they opened that wow. office in New York. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that was actually my my first kind of connection to the affiliate industry. Um, I didn't have a ton of experience uh, beyond starting with them, but it was such a great situation for me because when I started with them, I was the account manager for a lot of the big publishers in New York who were just starting to figure out affiliate and what it meant to them. Um, so you kind of had the likes of BuzzFeed and Gizmodo and Hearst who were all thinking about it from a fairly high level perspective. 
But I remember pitching so many publishers in the beginning um, that just had completely blank faces or, or just a, a general disbelief that affiliate could be anything more than pocket money um, and how times have changed. Emily, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about skim links and what they what they do because we might have some of those blank faced listeners <laughs> today. So just just give sort of the the high level overview of what their model is. Yeah, so you know, in the beginning they were they were solely a technology provider and now they have a ton of really good tools to help publishers get the most out of monetizing their their commerce content. But the idea was that in the very beginning um, when you think about how you kind of create content and you try and monetize that content via affiliate, there were lots of different affiliate networks that you could get joined up with. And for people who were starting to first do that, it was super tricky for them to run all of these relationships with all of these networks and do it in a scalable way. So Skimlinks, you know, came in and they aggregated all of those networks together. And it was a really, really easy way for publishers to kind of get their foot in the door um, with, you know, creating teams and also thinking about how they monetize that content. So there was one JavaScript that they could put on the page. It meant that they didn't have to hard code all of these different links. Um, they have an amazing merchant relations team who will um, do a lot of those negotiations for you as a publisher. And so it became a really easy way for publishers to try and um, try and figure out how they can get their teams up and running. You know, more over time, I think they've stepped into the space of, uh, you know, strategy and creating tools to help you get, you know, more revenue out of the content that you're creating. Um, but in, in the beginning, that's exactly how it started. Okay. So you're at Skimlinks, you're working with these major publishing companies and, um, asking them to to leverage the Skimlinks technology to monetize their own content. Was that how you ended up landing at Condé Nast? Yeah, it was. So, it, you know, before I joined Condé, um, I was on the team that, that got Condé set up with a contract with Skimlinks. And they were in the very, very early stages of their uh, affiliate journey, if you will. The, the idea was run through their business development team at the time. They had heard about different publishers doing this. And so they had just struck a relationship with Amazon and then they struck a relationship with Skimlinks. And so they essentially just had two scripts on the page for a couple of their select sites. The idea being, okay, let's get the scripts on the page. Let's not really change anything else about what we're doing. Um, and let's see what comes up. And I think for them, that was definitely a bit of a light bulb moment. So it sounds like based on the publishers that you were, the, the publishing companies that you were looking um, to get familiar with Skimlinks and Condé, there was blank faces all around, right? These people yeah. weren't familiar with affiliate marketing. You said they, you thought that, uh, they thought that it was nothing more than a little bit of pocket change. Why do you think that there was still, even as recent as a few years ago, such a level of unfamiliarity with affiliate marketing? Yeah, you know, I think affiliate marketing gets a bit of a bad rap, I think, for so Definitely. long. You know, it has been a coupon game in the very beginning. Everything was very clickbaity. I, 
I, I think in general, people saw it as a bit of a sketchy business model. Um, and still in my Skimlink days, we kind of had to push through the, the idea that this was something different and that content that you were creating in order to monetize via affiliate wasn't kind of a setting, second class citizen of content. Yeah. And that's still a real sensitivity with a lot of publishers, um, you know, Condé being one of them. And so I, I think it's kind of the general history of affiliate that, that made people a little bit unaware but i think it's also like you don't know what you don't know um, right and so it wasn't until a couple of publishers said hey we're going to test this out like once you get a couple of big publishers in new york doing something and talking about what they're doing and how they're doing it then that's when everybody kind of sits up like i only took two or three big publishers for other people to say all right we're we're going to start having a go at this yeah and conde is just to be clear so we can get an idea of what we're talking about conde nast is huge it's a, a, a giant global media company and the reach is something in the in the ballpark of 1 billion different yeah. listeners across i think it's 32 different different markets so it it always to me is it's been in the business for as long forever of of publishing so i think the idea of affiliate when we when we look at it like i think gimmicky maybe is the word a little sketchy but perhaps it was perceived as gimmicky but but conde nast is is a it's a different player in this game right it's it feels very very original in in the publishing house so having sort of that high quality content i think does change that game so affiliate no longer becomes this this sort of idea of of everything is a coupon and everything is last click and everything is is sort of that grab maybe like a like a, a mad dash to get that pocket change but now it seems like there's a concerted move where content became a major player so when you're talking about all of the different publishers and when how to kind of take it seriously was there like a moment where you thought to yourself it they get it they're getting it now. They understand. They can see it. Yeah, I, I think for Conde, it probably came in two separate waves. I think that the first one was like a general enthusiasm to give it a go, seeing that other publishers mm -hmm. in the industry um, were also doing it. Mm -hmm. It was right around the time um, that the New York Times bought Wirecutter. And I think for a big publication like Conde, to see kind of a, a strategic move like that is, is interesting right. to see in the industry. And I think it, it got a lot of people thinking about oh, I, I, maybe this isn't, you know, a fad. Maybe this isn't something that's going to pass super quickly. Maybe this is something that we should take seriously. Like a new um, norm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and honestly, it's just amazing when you think about like the affiliate industry today, the amount of jobs that have been created with this industry that were never there, that's a great you know, point. two, three, four years ago. The amount of commerce directors, the amount of commerce editors, commerce writers, um, it's yeah it's kind of insane to think about but i think the other thing for conde was just this idea of if we can get a couple of good case studies internally if we can get a couple of brands feeling good about the content that they're creating mm -hmm. and the revenue that they're able to generate from it that's when we have more success across the entire portfolio and so we were pretty strategic in the beginning to try and figure out what those six brands were that we were going to basically launch commerce with. Um, and we called them our, our lean in brands. So when we first started, which was September, 2017, the six brands that we had were Allure and GQ, 
Epicurious, Bon Appetit, Wired, and Ars Technica. And so we were able to choose them based on the data that we had seen coming in via skim links in Amazon, but also just from a general enthusiasm and um, ability to kind of work with the editorial teams there and, and their willingness to give it a go. So Emily, what I want to know is you have these six lean-in brands as part of the Condé portfolio, um, and you have data that that uh, indicates that they're faring well through skim links, they're part of your mm-hmm. commerce content strategy, which for all intents and purposes is simply just monetizing the content through the use of affiliate marketing, right? So... When you when you come into Condé, I'm curious, did was the content commerce strategy fully baked or did you have your own um, ideas about uh, how Condé could um, employ the use of affiliate marketing in a scalable way to make it a meaningful revenue stream? Did you bring over your your bag of tricks from Skimlinks? Right. Or were you like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea this was going to be like this? <laughs> Um, you know, there was a little bit of both. <laughs> right. Um, I, I think when you join a company like Condé, there's always a bit of unknown as to what are you entering into? What are, you know, how far along are these companies in terms of how they're thinking about these right. strategies? When I joined the company, they were very, very early on in terms of thinking about this. But I did have data to be able to look at to kind of make those decisions. The other thing is when I joined, it was September. So we were about to go into our first Q4, um, which in itself, I think, was a a blessing in disguise. It meant that we became very, very focused on one thing, uh, and that was how to nail gift guides and how to do Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Uh, And so, yeah, exactly. Baptism by fire. (laughs) <laughs> something like that yeah and so the ability to kind of go in and say all right the one thing that we're going to focus on this year is doing q4 effectively mm-hmm. um but the one thing that i implemented for that and we've continued to implement as the time has gone on is this kind of blueprint for success that we will apply to every single brand and then tweak accordingly based on what we see the data showing us so right the first thing is like this general concept of this this formula that we go back to again and again, which is that the only way to drive affiliate revenue is to focus on the volume of affiliate clicks and our earnings per click. And if we're not affecting one of those two metrics, then we're not going to drive the overall revenue. And so once we have those two metrics sorted, we then have levers that we can pull for each of those two metrics. So on the volume of affiliate clicks, we're thinking about how do we get the most amount of commerce content being published? So that generally means dedicated resource to creating commerce content or a certain percentage of an existing editorial team who are going to lean into the idea of creating commerce content. And I think okay. when we when we talk about commerce content, you know, we're talking about content that is being created with affiliate revenue in mind, whether it's simply thinking about the page layout, or it's thinking about the specific categories, or it's thinking about the retail destination. Um, And I think that's one of the things that have really helped Condé, and I think it's helped a lot of publishers in the general industry, is to kind of have that dedication um, and to hire people who are thinking about content in a slightly different way to the rest of the editorial team. For sure. And that sounds like the most critical component, I think, of of the whole commerce strategy would be to go in with that mindset and focus on that and sort of let the inertia drop. That's smart. So, yeah. When I'm thinking about that. Without getting. 
sorry, uh, carry on. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, I think, you know, one of the things that we have tried to do, you know, without getting too far away from this idea of the formula, is that uh, we've tried to do the editorial and the commerce dance a little bit differently in the fact that we've always wanted our content to feel very, very in line with our brand tone of voice. We didn't want commerce content to feel like it was completely different right. from what you would usually see on one of our editorial titles, which is why when we hired our first round of commerce editors and writers, they were fully embedded at the titles that they were writing for. So even though they sit on my team, if you're a commerce writer or a commerce editor for Wired or for Epicurious, you're sat with that team, you're pitching to the editorial team there, you're in all mm -hmm. of the morning meetings, you fully understand what their tone of voice is, what their perspective on things are. Um, it's hugely important. Yeah, and it's really later. allowed us to, to, to create the type of content that provides a ton of value to the reader. Um, one thing that we do from a business side is we actually never tell our editors what products to write about. Product choice um, is completely up to them. We want them to have That's the editorial integrity to be able to do it. But we will give a ton of feedback in terms of categories that are working, page layouts that are working, retailer link destinations that are best suited based on EPC. So there's a lot of other ways that we give them feedback and that we affect their decision making. Um, but yeah. product choice is never one of them. But it is essentially a team. It's a team effort, yeah. which is hugely helpful because they provide the integrity and then you provide the feedback based on data. Yeah, it's got to be this huge feedback loop. That's, I think, one of the biggest disconnects that a publisher can have is that, you know, people are making content in a vacuum with no idea of what is right. working and what is not. It's a good way to say that. Yeah. yeah and that's what I was going to ask about is how do you ensure that you're balancing um unbiased editorials with revenue generation because sometimes mm -hmm. the the scales can can tip in one one direction too far yeah and as a publisher you know that's really the key value that you're bringing to the market is that unbiased editorial uh content that readers crave so it sounds like the teams are fairly integrated to ensure that those scales don't tip in in one direction versus the other yeah, and I think it's a really fine line for for everybody. And I think, you know, we still figure it out on a daily basis. Um, and I think it's always evolving. But one of the things that we have tried to do is really give our editors the power to be able to make those decisions in terms of what they want to write about and who they want to write about. The thing is, is that the affiliate industry is so big that then they're never really hurting for you know, retailers um, or products to feature that are not in network or that don't have an affiliate program. And so, you know, the percentage of, of either categories or retailers that they'd want to feature that are not going to make us affiliate revenue is so small that we're more than happy for them to be included them in a roundup or in a gallery or right. a one-off piece. We would much rather that they make a true choice about what product to recommend, regardless of whether it's going to make us affiliate revenue or not, and kind of create this bigger, long-term, more sustainable business model than, you know, go for the quick hit and make sure that 100% of our products, you know, have the, the right. absolutely highest commission rate. Um, yeah. I think like the best example of that that I can come up with is, you know, mattresses 
<laughs> mattresses in general, you will see a lot of commerce content out there about mattresses right now. In general, those DTC companies have, you know, a lot of money from an affiliate perspective. And so um, there can, you know, tends to be a, a high yield category. We actually called in about 20 or 30 different mattresses at the beginning of this year, all to one World oh, wow. Trade Center. We laid them all out in this big conference room um, and we had all of our editors come <laughs> yeah, in and test all of those mattresses. Yeah, it was um, it was quite fun to take a nap in. But what <laughs> we did with the mattresses is we didn't tell any of the editors, um, you know, which ones had commission rates, which ones were, were paying out on. We wanted them to come in with a clear mind, make those decisions themselves. Um, and then on the back end, we can kind of do those business relationships, uh, figure out commission rates, make sure that we can get people, you know, on the right networks, make sure that we can monetize that content. Um, so we try and do a good job of making sure that our editors can make clear decisions without revenue being involved. That's brilliant, actually. They make their own bed. Make it yeah. lie in it. Then. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> but, um, uh, but, you, but there's two. One, one thing I'm thinking is more of a statement and the other thing I think is a question, but that authenticity really bleeds through the entire concept and the entire foundation of what affiliate marketing is, right? You have to have an authentic message to connect or to resonate with whoever it is. So so to be clear and to, and to make sure that the integrity is there on all of the different writers end is that's part of the formula about what makes affiliate marketing work so well. It's creating that trust and that relationship and, and giving that honest editorial, which I think is probably the, the number one ingredient. Uh, is there anything on that note? Is there anything that surprises you about the affiliate channel or, or maybe I don't want to say continues to surprise you or, or anything that, that maybe you all, you think, Oh, you have this figured out and Nope, I don't. <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I have, I have an example that kind of goes in the other direction and I'll try to think of one that goes in the, the direction okay. you're thinking of, but it kind of ties back to what you were saying about the, you know, being authentic about, you know, creating a strategy that means that you have loyal and trusting readers. And I think mm -hmm. one of the things that we've tried to do at Condé is this idea of create content that is so valuable that people would be willing to pay for it if they had to. And we actually put that to the test. <laughs> so I was going to say, I bet that's on a whiteboard somewhere. That's a great. Yeah, I know we should, we should frame it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could start some affiliate inspir inspiring quotes. Yeah. It's a great um, mantra. So yeah, we actually ended up putting it to the test. So um, Wired obviously has a paywall as do some of our other Condé brands. And we were a little bit worried about it when it first launched in terms of how it was gonna affect our overall affiliate revenue. Mm -hmm. but what we found over time is that actually our commerce content that our commerce team is creating is the content that drives one of the highest amount of subscriptions from a paywall perspective. Um, and, and even though I know that that's what we were working towards, it's always, exciting and a little bit shocking to me that we're able to do that that people yeah. will pay for product recommendations um and i think that's always been something that we've we've tried to work towards across all of our titles but have actually managed to do fantastically well at wired we have an amazing editorial team there um they really do a great job of making sure that that they're reviewing things testing things um curating products in a way that feels super authentic yeah. That, that's really interesting. I think to hear about a business whose roots go back to what, early 1900s, 
and at one point was all about generating subscriptions. Mm -hmm. And with the rise of digital, most people would probably think that the subscriptions have just completely dissipated altogether because content is so readily available in the digital world. Mm -hmm. But to hear that affiliate is actually influencing new subscriptions or paying subscriptions in this world where there's so much content is available at no cost is just amazing to me. Yeah. And is it a game of, of new customers or repeat business? Is, is that a game that you play? Do you ask yourself what's more important or, or maybe not place more value on one thing, but, but maybe place more value on one thing? Would it be yeah. repeat new? I would, I would say it's probably honestly a, a bit of a mix of both. I think the way that our KPIs tend to, um, tend to shake out across this this general industry and the business in in general is that you know time on site social engagement you know the even yeah. things like scroll depth the amount of engagement that we can get from a user is is what is most important to us and i think as the business starts to diversify i don't know that we're so worried about you know new or returning customers i think you know, any net new customers that you can get is always valuable. And I think especially as we start to work with advertisers and merchants on a more regular basis, we try and align ourselves a little bit more with their goals. So if you take the mm-hmm. idea of the subscriptions out of um, out of this conversation, it is so interesting to, you know, start to work with advertisers and say, okay, well, what are your biggest KPIs? If you are super interested in new users or people who don't um, own one of your store credit cards, how can we actually do a better job of targeting against, you know, the the massive scale and the data and the audience right. that we have in order to get this super high converting content into the hands of the people that you actually want to see that content? Um, so th- that is definitely what, yeah. Yeah, that is definitely what is exciting to me. Um, pivoted slightly away from your your original subscription question, but um, yeah, c- kind of and, interesting. And I'm curious from the brand or the advertiser standpoint, is it typical or atypical for you to hear that um, their key performance indicator most often most often is to drive new customers? I'd say it's pretty typical. I think what we hear a lot from from merchants is that you know they they knew know who their customer base is they feel like they've done a good job of repeat customers um with that customer base what they're looking for is to break into new audiences um you know with a specific geography or a target audience in mind that they're just not able to tap into um and i think for us it is really exciting because we've already done the work of creating this content that we know is going to convert very highly. The job now is just to amplify it to the right people. Um, And and what an amazing way to be able to do that. And and I think the other thing to kind of bear in mind with that is that for the longest time, Condé has always played at the very, very top of the funnel. We were all about branding and influence and, and, you know, education to our users about a specific product or a specific brand. And now with the commerce team, we're playing at the bottom of the funnel too. And so when we partner up with these advertisers and these merchants, we're able to say, not only can we influence at the top, but we can also drive lower funnel conversions at the bottom. And we can now provide something for you that is the full funnel. And on top of that, we can also find the right users to be able to, you know, give this content to. Um, And that's taken us a long time to kind of get to that point where we've put all those jigsaw pieces together. Emily, you have just said 
so many things that have uh, <laughs> resonated things. with me because, um, you know, I've been in the space for 13 years. You, you and I had a conversation before this interview today. And I think that one of the common challenges from my from my standpoint is that um, it it's not widely known by um, C-level marketers or executives mm-hmm. that affiliate is not simply a last click channel. Mm-hmm. Rather, affiliate is a is a channel that can provide value at all stages of the consumer purchase journey, from uh, cultivating and generating awareness to all the way through to um, driving conversions at the lower portion of the funnel. And so, to hear that a publisher like Condé Nast can provide that value across that entire path right. is just—I mean, there's so much value in that. Um, depending on what the goals of a that a brand has and the other piece is i think that it's not commonly known that affiliate marketing actually has targeting capabilities right especially yeah. for content publishers you know maybe on the loyalty side you know there are some um targeting levers that can be pulled but to hear you say that you know as a content publisher you have the ability to target these types of um, audiences based on a brand's um, goals is just music to my ears and hopefully will change the minds or perceptions rather of some of these Mm -hmm. executives who just don't understand it's true it's an educational curve i find right it's it's just that they don't they don't necessarily, or maybe they perhaps they believe the that old stigma, the the old gimmick that it is only last click metrics. It's you know it's a one trick pony so to speak. But affiliate living at the entire buyer journey at every single touch point in every part of that funnel is something that we live day in and day out. But for a brand who who may not have the education about that or the experience or anything to prove that point, I I could understand where that where that block is or where that that sort of inability to accept it or to throw their arms wide around it. And when they do, it becomes their most beloved channel, a channel that they can use to to tap in and to use, um, you know, incorporated with their other digital channels. So I think that's important. And I think what you say makes a lot of sense to us anyway, because that's something we hear <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's going to take, you know, a little bit more time for, you know, some merchants to catch up for us even to, you know, put this in to a bigger product that we can, you know, start to offer to our, our merchant partners. I think it, like I said, it's taken us some time to get to the point where we can kind of fit all of those pieces together. But it's so exciting to be able to say now we can actually, you know, figure out this full picture for a lot of our partners. Um, And, you know, you have the last however many years of of history coming into play and now the last two years of history coming into play and being able to put that together. I don't know. It's just so fun. Yes. And you put that very, you said that very, very well. I, I want to know two things this on a, just on a personal level. The first thing is, do you, and you don't have to, you don't have to give me the the really long answer to this, but (laughs) do you view affiliate and influencer marketing as one and the same or are they very two distinct sects? in your opinion? Yeah, you know, I actually view them as different. I think that affiliate marketing can be something that influencers can use. But I think that for influencers, there are a lot more channels that they are tapping into that maybe affiliate is not playing in. So if I had to define them, I'd actually put them in different buckets. But I think one can be used by the other. That's super interesting. And then the next thing and and I, I 
totally see that point. And then the next thing was, I'm just curious to know what your predictions are for affiliate. If you had to look at it, maybe look at it from three to five years out, where do you see affiliate? Yeah. You know, I think there were two things. I think if, if, if affiliate right now is playing in kind of this, this bottom of the funnel last click scenario, I think there are two things that are going to happen. I think we're going to start moving further up the funnel. Hopefully more merchants are going to be open to, you know, thinking about post impression attribution, thinking about, you know, what branding and influence does mean uh, when we're featuring mm-hmm. products or specific retailers. I think that's going to be super exciting. But I also think yeah. there is a lot of room for the entire industry to pivot, especially when it comes to I don't know I call it like the last last click which is you know coupons <laughs> and um and promos and deals and how you know I, I can't remember the stat that someone told me but we do know that a huge portion of the internet uh when they do their shopping they're looking for a promo code or a coupon um and I think that is probably going to start pivoting to 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 change the way that publishers play with coupons, coupons play with affiliates. I, I don't think it's the end of how that funnel all plays together. So I think the funnel starts to get longer and I think publishers start to play in different areas of the funnel. Um, so I think, you know, two or three years from now, it's going to be completely different again. That's super insightful, actually. It, the yeah. funnel elongates. You don't necessarily think of it like that. You think of the funnel positioning just maybe changing a little bit, but you don't necessarily think of it elongating i think that's really the never-ending story yeah 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 and i think also as you start to think about um you know dtc brands or brands that are selling you know more expensive products online that are more considered purchases i think Mm -hmm. publishers are going to have to start thinking about how we don't just create content for a last click for that you know impulse buy it's about taking someone from the top of the funnel to the very bottom of the funnel in a thoughtful way um and how we can you know encourage those readers down the funnel so when you start to think about investments or or mattresses or or anything that is a little bit more expensive um there's definitely a lot more work to be done there too i can get behind these predictions (laughs) (laughs) i think i'm in agreement 100 i love it All right. So Emily, we want to do a quick lightning round. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Chrissy will ask you a few. It's meant to be rapid fire. It's usually the most enjoyable part of the interview. (laughs) Are you ready? Hit me. Okay. What was the last song you listened to? Ooh, uh, I think it is Little Big Town Tornado. Okay. Yeah. Big country music fan. All right. (laughs) What is your favorite? Your time in Maine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What is your favorite Condé Nast brand? Oh my God, what a crazy question. Um, I think I have to say Glamour. I think they've done an amazing job um, at diversifying their content. I think they really do a really good job of talking about money and investments and females and politics uh, in a way that feels super accessible. I agree with that one. That was a good answer. Yeah. Who do you admire most? Goodness. Um, I've been listening to a ton of podcasts and I've literally read all of her books recently. Uh, but Elizabeth Gilbert, the author, I think she is incredible. I have a massive girl crush on her. Oh, good answer. <laughs> uh, dream vacation? Get to pick one place. Um, Bali right now, just because I reread Eat, Pray, Love. Oh, yes. Sibali's always on that list. And last but not least, your favorite cocktail? 
Oh, I am a cosmopolitan girl. I don't know whether it's too much sex in the city, but I love a good cosmopolitan. <laughs> no, that's a great answer. Cosmopolitan's a solid choice. Uh, before we let you go, Emily, could you tell us where we can find you and Condé Nast? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you can reach me on my email, which is Emily underscore Nozke. That's N-O-S-Z-K-A-Y at Condé Nast. Happy to answer any questions anyone has. Emily Nozke, Senior Director of Commerce at Condé Nast. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pep Talks podcast by Pepper Jam. Appreciate you coming on the show today. And I'm sure our listeners loved hearing your story Absolutely. about commerce content. Uh, thanks for have, or thanks for being part of the show. And we'll talk to you soon, Emily. Thank you, Maura. Thank you, Chrissy. Thanks for having me. So much fun. We just spoke with Emily Nozke, Senior Director of Commerce at Condé Nast, about the power of commerce content and how it's changing the face of publishing, while keeping eyes steady on ways to create affiliate revenue. You can check out the full podcast, plus many more, by visiting us at pepperjam.com slash podcasts.